Welcome back. Welcome back to the room. We're going to go ahead and get started. We are finishing up the Gospel of Mark today. We're finishing the Gospel of Mark. This is my 50th sermon in Mark. That's uh, not so much a testimony to me as much as it is to you for enduring 50 uh, sermons through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've been working through it off and on for a couple of years, and um, and today will be the final sermon uh, in this um, text, in this Gospel, um, should the Lord allow me to preach uh, for many more years, I don't know that I'll ever have the opportunity uh, to preach through Mark's gospel again. Next week, we start a new series through the book of Ruth. And uh, so we will have uh, scripture journals available for you next week um, with the entire ESV text of Ruth and an opportunity for you if you'd like to take notes and follow along. That should take us um, eight to ten weeks, uh, depending on how long-winded uh, the preacher is um, <clears throat> through Ruth. But that starts next week, and so I encourage you, uh, if you're interested, you can cycle through Ruth uh, two or three times this week. It's four chapters. It's a wonderful narrative, and uh, and it's an opportunity for you to to work through that on your own and then and then we'll come together next week and start that out. But today we finish Mark, like I said, if you're new to Scripture, if you're new to the Bible, um, typically if you just allow your Bible to open right in the middle, it'll hit Psalms. Uh, that's the longest um, book, 150 chapters in the Bible. And if you just move to your right, um, 25 or so um, books, you'll get through the major prophets, right? Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. You'll you'll work through those. Then you'll get to the minor prophets. That's the long list of the Oz, Isaiah, uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, some of those. And then you'll hit the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, those are the four books that describe the life of Jesus. And so we're finishing up in Mark's Gospel today. Uh, Mark chapter 16. So if you have your Bible open, uh, let's turn and, uh, and read verse 8 together. Mark 16 verse 8 says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's how Mark's gospel ends. And Mark's gospel ends in almost in the same way it started with a kind of a halting, abrupt. Mark jumps right into the action in Mark 1. And then throughout Mark's gospel, everything is and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. And so when we get to Mark's ending in verse 8, um, we have we would have expected a transition of immediately, but we don't. We don't get anything. We just get these women who had come to Jesus's tomb early on that Easter morning, and their goal was to take the spices that they had bought and to embalm the body of Jesus. Uh, they hastily put Jesus's body in the tomb on that Friday of his crucifixion. And then after putting him in the tomb, they uh, had to get back because the Sabbath was starting. And so their goal was that on the first day of the week, they would go back. And this is what they had done. But in 
The process of doing that, they were on their way to the tomb early that morning, and they were asking who's going to roll away the stone for us um, to get into the tomb. And once they got to the tomb, you can see what happened there. In 16.3, they were asking who's going to roll it away. In verse 4, they looked and entering the tomb. Verse 5, they saw a young man sitting there dressed in a white robe. This is not Jesus, uh, an angelic being there. They were alarmed. And he said to them this message, don't be alarmed, you Seek Jesus of Nazareth. He is risen. He's not here. Come see the place where they laid him, and then go and tell his disciples and Peter. And then, of course, the Gospel of Mark ends. Well, what happens next? Why does his Gospel start there? Why didn't he record more? His ending seems abrupt and incomplete. And at this point, many of you are saying, but, but it's not where it ends. Uh, here in my Bible, I see there's more to it. So why do you say it's ending in verse 8? Just by a show of hands, how many of your Bibles include verses 9 through 20 that you're looking at right now? Just raise your hand if you see verses 9 through 20. How many of you, your Bible does not have verses 9 through 20? Anybody, just raise your hand if you don't see it. Or raise your hand if you see verses 9 through 20, but it's in a bracket, or it has a pair of uh, listing. Right? What does that listing say? What does it say? Carol, I saw your hand up. What does it say? Okay. So what's the deal with the brackets? What's the problem here? Why do we have verses 9 through 20 in some versions? In other versions, it says uh, something like the oldest, just follow along in your footnote, it probably says this exactly, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts does not include verses 9 through 20. How many of yours says something like that? A lot of you, right? So what's the deal here? What are we going to do with this? What about this version? If it's not in every Bible, is it God's Word? Is it authoritative? Is it binding on our lives? How should we approach Mark 16 the longer ending or the shorter ending or the abrupt ending? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle this? It didn't seem right to finish Mark without some sort of an understanding of textual criticism, textual variances, how the Bible is transmitted, how we get it. So what's the understanding? Let me just help us get a grasp on this. Because in... In all my life, I've never heard a sermon from Mark 16, 9 through 20. I was converted around age 17, um, brought into church, and heard many sermons since then. But I don't think I've ever heard a sermon from Mark 16, 9 through 20. Just raise your hand if you've heard a sermon in Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 that you can remember. Anybody? Okay, a couple people. Okay. Uh, I have a, um, a, a series on my shelf called 20 Centuries of Great Preaching. There are 13 volumes just like this, and it catalogs and indexes every noteworthy preacher of every century, starting with the book of Acts and sermons preached in the book of Acts, and the preachers who preached those all the way through the first 
second, third, you get the picture, all the way through 20 centuries of great preaching, right? Um, and in that, um, in this 13th uh, volume, it has the index of all the preachers who have all preached notable sermons. It includes a biography of all the preachers. It includes a handful of all their best sermons. Guess how many sermons have been preached in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 um, in the last 2,000 years. Anybody want to take a guess? Nobody. Everybody's scared to get the wrong. Two. There are two sermons that were included uh, from Mark chapter 16, and they each were preached once, referring only to one. Means these verses, but other ancient manuscripts don't. This longer ending is missing from the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts. And there are two in particular, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Right Now, before your eyes glaze over and before you say, I don't want to listen to all the stuff that you're about to get into, um, Gibson, um, just bear with me for just a minute. Um, Those two early codices are bound books with pages called leaves, and they were as early as 250 to 350, 250, 350 after Jesus's birth. Um, In the Reformation, there was this mad scramble uh, defined as ad fontes, Back to the sources. Let's scour the monasteries. Let's scour the convents. Let's scour the libraries. Let's scour the churches. And let's find the most reliable, the most ancient, the most accurate copies of all the scripture that we have so that in our translation, as we try to put the Bible into the vernacular, the common language of all the people so that all the people can have the word of God for themselves. It's not just locked up for the priests to read in Latin, but that every person can have a scripture and with the printing press and all those kind of great inventions, there was access to the scriptures and so they were finding it. Some guy, I don't know if it was Tischendorf, I don't know if it was Erasmus, but somebody was scouring and they found half of Codex um, Sinaiticus in a trash dump out of monastery and grabbed it and found it and found the other half in the library and it turned out to be one of the oldest copies, complete copies of the New Testament. Uh, And because of this, they were able to compare and find the footnotes that you see. The oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't include these verses. Listen to more information. The longer ending is missing from those two codices, as well as numerous early Latin, Syriac, Armenian, and Georgian manuscripts. In addition, early church fathers, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, did not appear to know these verses, verses 9 through 20. Um, In addition to that, Eusebius and Jerome later state that this section is missing in most manuscripts that were available at their time, and some manuscripts that do contain verse 9 through 20 later in early church history indicate they had the same footnote that you have in yours. Their notes say that this section is missing. So because of that, many church fathers, um, Irenaeus knew of these verses and others, um, and because of the text themselves, verses 9 through 20, it contains language, Greek words, and expressions that Mark doesn't use at all in the previous 16 chapters and eight verses 
Uh, in addition, it, it, it adds some interesting information, right? What jumps out to you about 16, 9 through 20? Just speak up. You can say it. Right? It's the snake handling part, right? In 1910, a guy named Henry uh, went something or other, introduced um, snake handling in churches in the Appalachian region, which meant that if you're a real believer, if this was true, that, uh, that you would walk down the aisle and reach your hand into a tank of venomous snakes and just allow that thing to, to latch onto your arm and the fact that you wouldn't die immediately put out of practice that we see. <laughs> so this introduces some interesting uh, things. It doesn't command us to grab snakes and stuff like that. It just says that you will and that coincidentally was fulfilled with Paul. Do you remember in the later chapters of Paul, maybe Acts 28, 6, 27, he reaches to put some fire on and what happens? A viper grabs him by the hand uh, and he doesn't die. He shakes it off into the fire and everybody says, this guy's a God, right? The God's with this guy. Well, so there's some interesting things in verses 9 through 20 that help us to know we should read this with caution. This also applies to just a couple of other passages. You can probably think of one. In John chapter 7, verse 53 through 811, it's the same bracket with the same information that says the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include this. Do you remember what that story was in John 7, 53 to 811? It's the woman caught in adultery. That's right. And Jesus does something interesting that he's never known to do anywhere else. What does he do? stoops down and he starts to draw in the sand. Um, Not heretical. It doesn't challenge any major doctrine, but these two primary passages, there's another one in Colossians 1. uh, There's some other passages, very slight wording, but these are the two that we really have to deal with. Mark 16, 9 through 20, and John 7. Now listen, how did you get your Bible? How did you get the Bible you're holding? You think, well, my mom gave it to me or, you know, this Bible um, I bought when I became a pastor and had to preach every week. And I thought, I'm going to get myself a a nice leather Bible that will hold up, uh, that I'll do my study in. You might have picked yours up on Amazon or maybe you downloaded it from the app store or something like that. Um, But that's not the question. How did we get this Bible in English In our translation, how did it come down all these years? If you watch a documentary on History Channel or uh, some other channel, Discovery Channel, something like that, they'll tell you that it's corrupted because it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy or something along those lines. Uh, If I were to make a... um, go and get a router and make a wooden uh, circle out of a piece of wood, and then if I were to take that first piece I cut out and then trace it on another piece and then take the next piece I cut out and trace it. What would happen if I did that 20 times to the end? What would the last piece look like compared to the first piece? Well, if I just kept making copies of copies of copies of copies, I would have a larger piece, wouldn't I, at the end, at the end of that process. The first one wouldn't look so much like the last one. So people who don't understand Bible translations and the process of transmission think that that's how our Bibles get corrupted, is that we make copies of copies of copies. But that is against all fact. Ad fontis, back to the sources, was this period when they were looking for the most ancient and reliable manuscripts that they could base each new translation off of. So we want to talk about this this morning. I want you to walk away with confidence that the Bible that you're reading is accurate. It's reliable. 
and it's trustworthy and without error and divinely inspired and responsibly translated into your language. Now you might say, great, Gibson, thanks for this message today. My life is falling apart. I have addictions. <laughs> my, my relationships are going bad. My job's terrible. My health is failing or whatever situation you find yourself in. And I, I showed up here today hoping for a message of good news and, and all you're going to give me is textual variances and Bible translations and Codex, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and all these. Thanks a lot. Should I get up now or should I wait 15 or 20 minutes and get up then? And listen, if that's you, just hang on because there's good news ahead. Okay, promise me. I promise you there's good news ahead. I want you, I have three prayerful goals for you as you listen to today's message. That is number one, that you would walk away today with a greater appreciation and understanding and a love for the word of God. That's my, that's one of my prayerful goals. As I prayed for you this week, my prayer was that you would take this book and that you would say, oh, I appreciate this so much. Have you ever seen videos of a Chinese believer receiving their first Bible, finally having given their, given their lives to Christ and having um, heard about the Bible and heard about the, that they finally get a copy of their own scripture. Uh, a person in the earlier service described one of his professors who set up a, a, um, a printing press in Hong Kong and was very active in smuggling scripture into China for uh, 53 separate trips. And he described time after time after time of seeing a new believer in China, getting their Bible and just weeping and hugging and crying over it. They, he told me they don't set their Bible down. It never touches the ground. They always read it. And he also remembers seeing one person um, get a Bible, a, a portion of a Bible of Peter, and then handing it off to somebody else almost um, casually and flippantly and just handing it to somebody else and not even needing it themselves. And when he found out later, he said that that person had memorized the entire section of Peter just so that they could give it to somebody else. They received the word of God with inc incredible eagerness and honor and cherish it. You probably have 25 Bibles in your house and you might be lucky to pick up one in an average week for the average Christian in America. But for those who cherish and believe it, I want us to marvel like a brand new uh, Chinese Christian by the end of our time together today. I want you to be so in awe of the Word of God that you are saturating your life with it. Um, the second prayerful goal that I have for you today is I want you to marvel at the ways in which God has gone to great lengths to preserve His Word. I want you just to be in marvel of who God is and the way He preserves His Word and fulfills His promise that the flowers fade and the grass withers, but the word of God stands and endures forever. And he's gone to great lengths to preserve it. And my third goal for you today is that if you are seeking Jesus, the Bible is the best place to start. It's a reliable, trustworthy source for the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And from Genesis to Revelation, it is a reliable unfolding of the redemptive drama culminating in the birth, the life, the death of Jesus at the cross and his resurrection. I want you to know the Bible is, is good for that. It stands up to scrutiny. You can ask it any question you like. You can question it. You can come hard at it as many scholars have gone after it before. You can do that and it stands up to 
that scrutiny, especially if you're seeking Jesus in the context of a church or if you're seeking Jesus in the context of a trusted friend who loves Jesus and lives it out sincerely, however imperfectly they do. So let's ground this discussion in text, in scripture. If we can't ground it in 16, 9 through 20, let's turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to ground the remainder of our conversation here in scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at a handful of different verses from two, chapter 2 to chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, 2 Timothy, uh, if you go to the very end to Revelation, that's the last book of the Bible, and then you just flip left three or four books, you're going to find 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus bundled together. And we're going to look at the one called 2 Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, in the context of Paul writing to his young protege, disciple, Timothy, who's pastoring a church, in the context of that, false teachers have gone into Timothy's church. And they're trying to deceive people. They're trying to lead people away. They're opposed to the truth. And so Paul is telling Timothy, how do you handle false teachers? Here's what you do, Timothy. Verse 15, do your best best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul's instruction to Timothy is handle this thing rightly. Let's say I had a job working in a laboratory in a hospital or in a research facility and Part of my job was to handle samples of some kind. If I handled those samples irresponsibly or without protocol, if I didn't wear gloves or a mask, or I didn't, you know, uh, if I um, was in some way uh, corrupting samples, I wouldn't keep that job very long, would I? As a pastor, if, if you hear me talk about Scripture in a way where I can't point to you a chapter and a verse and a book. And if it comes across to you that I don't know what I'm talking about, then something changes in our, there's a kind of a contract between you and I here that, that I'm going to deliver information that I believe in, that I'm, that I'm trying to live out. And not only that, but that's academically honest, that it is um, reliable, that you can yourself go and verify everything that I did. Like Paul said to the Bereans that, that they were more noble than those of Thessalonica, that they went home and they studied the scriptures to see if the things that Paul was telling them were true or not. I have to communicate to you in such a way that my words can be verified and that that there's no doubt that the scripture I'm teaching, you can verify it yourself. And if I don't, then you should call into question my ability and my my job could be in danger. Um, And I'm grateful that we have a church like that, that there are responsible, conscientious believers here who don't rely on me to teach them the word of God necessarily, but are eager to teach themselves and to learn themselves and to grow and to study with a clear conscience in this way. That's a, that's a gift from God. And I expect it not just of myself, but I expect it of you as a believer. That you're not just saying somewhere, the Bible, I think it says something about following your heart and you know something like that, that God loves everybody and that there's a lot of... I would expect you to say, no, 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 no. It doesn't say that at all. 
Matter of fact, it says the heart is wicked and it's, uh, it's, it's corrupt. And, it's, and, and I can point to you in Romans chapter 3, in verse, you know, verse 15 and 16, it says that, that there is no one who seeks God. There is no one righteous. There's not even one. And in Ezekiel 36, it says that it will remove from you a heart of stone. I would expect that from you as a believer to know what you're talking about. That if somebody were to say to you, so you believe that that's God's word, that he, that he inspired it and breathed it out and wrote it, and, and you don't even know it, then I would expect that person to say, you must not take your faith very seriously if you don't even know what it's called, the Bible. There, there has to be some part of us that um, lives out 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, that we present ourselves to God as a worker who's approved, who rightly handles truth. So let's talk briefly about how Scripture gets written. How Scripture gets written. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3, just a chapter over, verse 16, says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So if all Scripture is breathed by God, that is the 66 books of our accepted canon that went through many uh, decades and uh, trials and processes of looking at Scripture and saying, this Gospel of Thomas doesn't sound like the Gospel that, that, that we've received in these other four that are early, that are written by an apostle or have an apostolic witness or that's been accepted by the church. Or this one is later. It came out in the Gnostic influence of the second century and, and it just doesn't ring true. It doesn't, it's not, there are all these trials and canons and places where they said, this is the authorized, recognized scripture that has been in use since the beginning since the first century, if that's the way it is and it went through all that, then what does that mean that it's breathed out by God? What did that mean for the relationship between God and David who wrote the Psalms or God and Samuel who wrote some of these history books or God and Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa who wrote the, you know, the, the, the prophetic book of, Isaiah, of Amos or Isaiah or Jer? What's the relationship between God and the physician Luke who was an investigative journalist in addition to being a doctor and how he attached himself to and, and did eyewitness interviews what's that did God just breathe on a blank piece of paper in front of them and words appeared <laughs> or did did God put them in some kind of a weird trance and they just kind of closed their eyes and scribbled until the Bible appeared what's this mean God breathed God breathed what does that mean what is how do we understand this inspiration to where God describes himself as the author of scripture? Second Peter one gives us that information. You can jot this reference down or you can turn there, but second Peter one chapter one, verse 20 says that um, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That means that when someone sat down, they weren't saying, I'm going to write scripture. I'm going to sit down and write a long treatise on who God is and what he means. It didn't come from their own interpretation. But verse 21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that verb carried along. 
is the same verb that would have been used on the Mediterranean Sea if the captain of a ship said, raise the sail, and once the sailor raised the sail, the wind carried it along, filled the sail, and carried it forward. That's the same Greek word used in the ocean, used as the description of how people wrote Scripture. Their minds were filled by the Spirit of God so that they were able to write. But the beautiful thing about the Scripture and the writings of the Scripture is that God allowed the authors to maintain their personality, to maintain their circumstances, to maintain the occasion. Think about Paul writing to the Galatians. If you read Galatians 1, 2, and 3, Paul is furious. Who bewitched you? Who came in and taught you these false teachings? And who came in? There's a context text and an occasion that spurred that letter. And Paul was able to write it in his own tone, in his own voice, but it was the Holy Spirit filling this sail that caused him to write the things he wrote. And if you think about that process of writing scripture, if it was inspired, written by regular people, but inspired by God, and they wrote to an occasion, they are uh, speaking God's word as God's spirit fills their mind and enables them to write to people In real circumstances, in real historical context, think of Paul writing to Romans, I want to get to Spain, and I'm going to show you my gospel, so I'm going to write before I get there so that you can vet who I am and and what my scripture and what the gospel is saying. So in all that process, Paul maintains his own voice, but also is writing these inspired words of God. So if it's divinely inspired, how does it get transmitted? How does it go from the first century to the second century to the third century to you sitting here today reading an English Bible and someone in the Philippines reading a Bible in Filipino or to someone in Russia reading it in Russian? How does the Bible get transmitted based on that if it's, if it's been written in all these different languages? Well, the process is that scribes received it, copied it on uh, papyrus or animal skins and they preserved it and they protected it. Um, In all these ways, they were careful to preserve it and to honor it and to cherish it and to as carefully as they could to write it down and pass it along. Somebody got a letter from Paul uh, to the Colossians and the believers at the house church at Colossae heard those words and then they set to copying it and then it went out to the other house churches in the surrounding area and so each of them had a copy of it and then they were distributed and then more were distributed and each time they were copied so much so that the new testament has an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the numbers of manuscripts 5700 5700 in greek in addition to countless others in syriac and coptic in um Uh, other languages, Latin and others around. Within the first 600 years, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. And compared to other documents of ancient Near East uh, antiquity, we have the by far the most, a hundred times more than the next um, document of antiquity in the number of their copies. A story might illustrate it better at I don't want to lose anybody. And I could tell I might be losing people. So I don't want to lose people because I geek out about some of this stuff and you may not, right? Um, But here's a story that will illustrate how faithfully and reliably scripture is transmitted from one generation to the next, from one person to the next. Previously, prior to 1947, we had a copy of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, 
And I believe it was dated to around 300 years after the birth of Jesus. But in 1947, an interesting thing happened. A Palestinian Bedouin shepherd boy lost a sheep, saw a cave, and picked up a rock and thought, if I can just chunk this in that cave, maybe this lost sheep will come running out and I won't have to hike that mountain and, and chase it down and find it. Chunks a rock in this cave and here's pottery breaking, not a sheep. So he goes up to investigate and he finds hundreds of clay jars, you know, about this high off the ground, filling the entire cave. And he sees the one that he broke and he sees that there's leather in it. And so he, he looks at the leather a little bit and he, and he says, well, these will make great shoes. And so he takes the leather and he straps them around his feet and ties them on and walks around for a couple of days around the Dead Sea area. And finally it starts to fall apart. And so he takes it to a pawn shop or to an antique dealer and says, what will you give me for this leather? And the guy looks at it and he says, it's not leather at all. It's some sort of parchment with writing on it. And he takes that and uh, goes and discovers the, the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century called the Dead Sea Scrolls. It contains um, fragments and full copies of almost every book in the Old Testament uh, that predates the previous copies by 600 years. And in all the editorials and in all the academic papers in the time before those Dead Sea Scrolls were translated... Everyone who was skeptical and cynical said, what you're going to find is when they translate and unroll these scrolls, you're going to find an entirely different Old Testament than what we had had before. But in the process of that entire translation process, they found that it was within 99% consistent and accurate with the copies that we'd had later. You see that? 600 years, different language. The message was untouched, preserved, Change. Just last month, March 16th, 2021, there was a, another discovery in the Dead Sea area. The second largest cache of scrolls found again. Now listen, that demonstrates the process by which God will faithfully and reliably allow the word of God to be transmitted from one to the other. So let's get back and look at 2 Timothy for a moment. Because it came in the context of people who were trying to corrupt scripture. And if you're struggling with this, and in our current culture, people are casting a lot of doubt on the Bible. And you can go to a, a dozen churches in the area, and you might hear people refer to the Bible and then talk about some kind of Oprah or Dr. Phil kind of pop psychology, something or other, or more of a me-centered. You won't really hear a lot of people just preaching the Bible and talking to you about what the scripture itself says. And there's a lot of doubt on scripture. That's one of the ways in which your faith will be attacked and eroded is as people ask those questions. Well, do you really think that God would say that? Do you really think that God would say this about sexuality or gender? Or do you really think that God would say this or about that, about Jesus being the only way? And they won't maybe necessarily frontally attack you about your confidence in the word of God, but they'll just undercut it and erode it. And if you're not careful, and if you don't have any defenses in place, and if you don't have your own mind settled, just like Paul to Timothy, Paul's writing in a context. Verse 16 through 18, he says, avoid irreverent babble. 
avoid irreverent babble, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Uh, these are people in the church that Paul is writing to Timothy about. Watch out. They're talking irreverently. They're just babbling on and their talk spreads like gangrene. Verse 17, 2 Timothy 2. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved away from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened and they're upsetting the faith of some. What does it mean, irreverent babble? Well, Titus 3.9 and 1 Timothy 6.20 um, expand on it as saying that it's foolish controversies dissensions, quarrels, myths, genealogies. The warning is very clear. It's for those who take their attention off the word of God and fixate on things. You might think of it as conspiracy theory kind of things. Things that are speculative. Things that are future oriented, that are unverified, that are just opinions. People who fixate on those and take their attention and take it off the word of God and fixate on controversial things, dissensions, quarrels, myths, genealogies. The warning is that if they do that, they will swerve away from the truth. If you're promulgating and sending out and, um, and fixating on things that are not true and aren't in the word of God, it can dominate your attention and you can be in danger of deceiving people or being deceived. If the myths and the conspiracies that you think are true end up not being true, then why would people believe what you say is true here if everything else you say doesn't lend itself to truth and credibility? There's a real warning there. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20 that they're in danger of swerving away from the truth. 2 Timothy 3, he also goes on and says, they creep into the households and they capture weak women who are burdened by their sins and they lead them astray and led astray by various passions. They're, these false teachers are always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's a ship that's constantly sailing, but never arrives anywhere. Never has a settled conviction that thus saith the word of the Lord, right? It's constantly wandering. He said, among them, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. They're corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. 2 Timothy 3.13, he goes on to describe them as evil people and imposters who go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Listen, if you're not grounded in truth, you can be deceived and you can find yourself deceiving people. Paul tells Timothy to watch out. That's why he says, do your best to present yourself as a worker who's not ashamed and who rightly handles this word of truth. That Greek word, do your best, is spadazo, and it means the believer must zealously pursue something. Zealously pursue God's approval. And one way to do that is to make sure you handle Scripture right and responsibly. So what should we do in response to this? I told you earlier that if you just hang on, you're going to see why this matters, right? Um, it matters because this, if you come to church to hear a message of hope, and it's just me talking out of my own head, out of my own authority, not many people would remain here. I can promise you that. I don't have anything creative or helpful to say from my own, out of my own source. If I've got to preach this or I can preach nothing, 
And if you come to church to hear a message of hope, if you're seeking Jesus and the life that he offers, there's only one place to go for the best and most reliable information, and that's the scriptures. If you read the words of the Bible, they matter. And understanding how you got that word matters. Understanding how scriptures translated and transmitted matters. Understanding that in a hundred years, as our English language evolves and changes, there will be a need for a new translation from the scriptures so that it's in the common language that people can understand. You should be confident in the Bible that you're holding and confident in the way in which God has preserved it. 2 Timothy 3 also says, Paul says, continue in what you've learned. If you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, maybe a lost friend, a lost family member, a lost co-worker, you've seen how God changes your life and gives you hope and forgiveness of sins and peace and saves you for a purpose and releases you to do good works, zealous for good works and do good things and, and, and uh, affirm the gospel to, to yourself and to those around you. They see your life change. And, and if in that process you're trying to share the gospel with others, one of the greatest things you can do is just help them get in the word of God. It's like building a fire, finding dry wood, cutting it up, arranging it. You can't light the fire, but you getting them into the word of God, helping explain the scriptures is what helps the fire uh, be prepared and ready so that when the gospel is lit, it just, it just changes their lives. Before you find any person who gives their life to Christ, you can almost always find two things. People praying for that person and them being exposed to the word of God long before I became a Christ follower, back when I was still sort of atheistic and agnostic, I, used, I was so desperate for life change. I would go into my living room at night, 11 o'clock after everybody went to bed, and I would take this big, huge Catholic Bible off the mantle. It just sat there in this wooden kind of stand thing. It just stood there like no one in our family believed it and no one really lived it. It just was like this holy kind of relic that we had at our house. And it was some ancestor's big Bible. It was big. I mean, I would... After everybody, I was too ashamed. After everybody went to bed, I would go get it and I would just you know, open this big thing and I would start at the very beginning, Genesis. I read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and somewhere through Numbers, I was just like, oh, I don't know what all these genealogies and I have no idea what this means. And I would just give up. But for months, I was reading scripture. And you know what it was doing? It was arranging a fire so that when the gospel was presented to me, the, the wood was all prepared. Someone gives their life to Christ, you look, you'll find a people who are faithfully praying for that person's salvation, and you're going to find that they have an uncanny interest in the Word of God because it makes you wise for salvation. Now let me close with this. Right? I know those are the words you're waiting for. Let me close with this. I want you to be confident in Scripture, and I want you to understand it's a trustworthy God. I wanted you to know some, some of the basics about His transmission and all that thing, but ultimately you have to come to a point where you decide, I believe this. I believe it. I don't understand it. I believe it, though. And, and even though I don't understand it, I, I can accept it as God's Word. Years ago, I read this, and I read it again uh, I've read it many times. It's, um, it's Billy Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am. How many of you have ever, ever read this? Anybody ever read it? Billy Graham, famous evangelist from the from last century, um, preaching, uh, all overseeing um, conversions, and those things. Early on in his life and career in his ministry, he got to a point right before the Los Angeles Crusades. Um, 
he got to a point where he was doubting the word of God. And it started not because of him so much, but it started because some of his contemporaries, um, Franklin, I'm sorry, uh, Graham Templeton, uh, Graham Templeton started to reject scriptures. And, and in his autobiography, this is what he said, listen closely. He said, um, the particular intellectual problem that I continued to wrestle with for the first time since my conversion as a teenager was the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. What other people pointed out as seeming contradictions and problems with interpretation defied intellectual solutions, so I thought. And so I was asking myself, could the Bible be trusted completely? And he said, feeling a little hypocritical, I began an intensive study of this question. I read theologians and scholars on all the sides of the issues. I turned to the Bible itself. He read many of the verses that I just read for you, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle uh, Timothy, the Apostle Paul. He read all these things. And, and then the, he got into these disturbing conversations. He said, the disturbing conversations with Chuck Templeton, my confused reaction to studying influential, sometimes contradictory theologians, all the quandaries over a career in education, versus ministry and evangelism. All these things brought me to a point of struggle until I went to this place in the Hollywood Hills called Forest Home and just began to struggle. It's right before this crusade. And he said this, I ached as if I were on a rack. Miss Mears, this faithful witness to the gospel and to the word of God on one side and Chuck Templeton on the other, and they were stretching me. Alone in my room one evening, I read every verse of scripture I could think of that had to do with, thus saith the Lord. I recalled hearing someone say that the prophets had used the phrase, the word of the Lord said, or some similar wording, more than 2,000 times. I had no doubts concerning the deity of Jesus or the validity of the gospel, but was the Bible completely true? If I was not exactly doubtful, I was disturbed. How could I stand up before people and preach what I didn't believe myself? I even pondered the attitude of Jesus toward the scriptures. He loved the writings and he quoted them constantly. Never once did he intimate that they could be wrong. In fact, he verified some of the stories in the Old Testament that were the hardest to believe, such as those concerning Noah and Jonah. With the psalmist, Jesus himself delighted in the law of the Lord, the scriptures. And as the night wore on, my heart became so heavily burdened with the question, could I trust the Bible? And with the Los Angeles crusade galloping toward me, I had to have an answer. If I could not trust the Bible, I would not go on. I would have to quit the school presidency where I was the, the seminary president at Western School, Western University. I would have to leave all pulpit evangelism. And I was, 30 year, I was only 30 years of age, but it was not too late for me to become a dairy farmer. Right? This is what he's trying, struggling with. You hear the struggle in his voice? He said, but that night I believed with all my heart that the God who saved me would not let go of me and could solve this for me. So I got up and I took a walk. The moon was out. The shadows were long in the San Bernardino Mountains surrounding the retreat center. Dropping to my knees there in the woods, I opened the Bible on a random tree stump right in front of me. I couldn't even read it because of the shadows and the moonlight. So I had no idea what text lay there before me. But, the, but, but I knew it was like an altar that I could only stutter into prayer. And I can't remember the exact wording of my prayer, but it must have echoed my thoughts. Oh God, there are so many things in this book that I don't understand. There are so many problems with it that I don't have any solutions. There are so many things that seem to contradict 
contradict itself in science, and I can't understand some of the philosophical and psychological questions that Chuck and others are rising, raising. I was trying to be on the level with God, but something remained unspoken, and at last the Holy Spirit freed me to say it. Father, I have no... I am going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow my faith to go beyond all my intellectual questions, but I believe that this, my heart and my most spiritual battle and my soul had been fought and won. It's a moment like that that many of you might be struggling with. That is this the Bible? And despite all the answers that you might have from academics and from other circles, at some point you have to say, I'm going to trust I'm going to trust that this is God's word and that it will make me wise for salvation and that I can trust it as a reliable guide for my soul and for my life and for my practice. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in Hebrews it says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning each of our thoughts and intentions in our heart. Your word also says uh, that many of us never progress beyond to maturity because we struggle over, as Hebrews 5 says, the basic oracles of God. And we need milk, not solid food. Because everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since that person is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Lord Jesus, would you help us like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it we may grow up into our salvation as indeed we who have tasted that you are indeed good. Lord Jesus, I praise you that I can sit in a room where people sing with conviction, when heads nod and people agree that you are good and that your word is good and trustworthy. Uh, it's the most encouraging sermon to preach and when the, a room full of people are standing on the conviction because they have believed and they have seen that you are good. It goes far beyond any ritual or religious um, exercise that people go through to get favor from you. I, I'm surrounded by people who sincerely believe, and I praise you for that. I thank you for the context of this fellowship, that there are so many people who are convinced that your word is true and who understand that Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected and lives today. We praise you that he is not far off, but he is right here because he promises in his word that he will be with the two or three, whenever two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. I thank you that even now your spirit is working in the hearts of men and women, children as well, drawing them to yourself because you love them, because of the testimony of your word. I pray that we would be faithful to it and that you would use it to strengthen us and to challenge us and to change us. Father, we thank you for today. We ask your blessing on this message in, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.